Last week, I was uh, preaching on worship. You might recall that if you were here with us last week. And one point that I made is that the church in America today has gotten soft. The church in America today has gotten soft. She's soft in a lot of ways. She's soft for a lot of reasons. She's soft, I think, for one thing, because she does not sing the psalms. So many of our hymns just don't measure up to the Psalter. You look at the Psalms and what do you find? The Psalms are songs that will toughen up the church because the Psalms so often are about enemies and they're about suffering and they're about uh, being persecuted and uh, ultimately God vindicating his people. And those are the kinds of songs we need to be singing. They'll toughen us up, but the church today often does not. The church today is soft because she tries too much to pander to the world. The church wants to be liked, and so she spends too much time explaining away the controversial and you might say politically incorrect parts of the Bible. Instead of explaining them, she explains them away. So often the church today is more concerned with making people comfortable than making them holy, like Christ. So often in in the church today, it's therapy over truth. There's this concern to make people comfortable rather than making them holy or this desire to make people feel better instead of making them want to live better. And that just dominates what happens in the church so often today. Uh, So often churches today are soft because they are unwilling to talk about the hard passages of scripture. Uh, passages that talk about the cost of discipleship or the demands and conditions that Scripture puts on us as followers of Jesus. And I have to be honest with you, preachers are largely to blame for this. Uh, I, I saw where Steve Lawson said, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. That's a sign something is wrong, perhaps. Preachers are too afraid to say anything that might get them into trouble. Nobody wants to kill them. That's a mistake. Uh, Martin Luther, I think, was much more on target when he said, I preach better when I am angry. He understood that the gospel preacher needs to be angry. Now, what's he angry with? He's got to be angry with sin. To preach well, you've got to be angry with sin, and the preacher needs to make his hearers angry at sin as well. The good news of the gospel The good news of Christ's salvation makes no sense unless we have first reckoned with the bad news of our sin and what sin does to us and what sin deserves. We need to see sin as our enemy. And the sins we love so much and the sins we cherish so much are actually the very things that are destroying us. We cling to the very things that torment us. That's the problem with the human condition. We've got to learn to hate our sins. And preachers need to preach in such a way that they show anger against sin and cultivate an anger in the people against sin. It's one of the reasons the church today is soft is because we don't really hate sin. We haven't cultivated a hatred for sin. Here's another way the church today is soft. A lot of churches today shy away from one of the major themes Scripture gives us about the Christian life. And the church shies away from this because it's just unpopular. It is what you could call the warfare theme. The Christian life is a life of constant, total war against sin. The Christian is called to fight, to strive, to make every effort. Every Christian 
as a soldier. In these words we've read from Mark chapter 9, Jesus describes the Christian's warfare against his own sin. It is a call to radical warfare against your own sin. And this is actually a theme that has been building in Mark's gospel. This passage at the end of Mark 9 doesn't come from out of nowhere. It's actually part of a theme that has been building in Mark's gospel to this point. So, for example, in the previous chapter, Jesus foretells his death on the cross. At the end of Mark 8, he began to teach that the Son of Man, obviously referring to himself, the Son of Man, the new Adam, must suffer many things and will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, that is, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So even before we get to this passage in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has already described Christian living in terms of dying. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means you take up your cross. You have to practice self-denial and sacrifice as a way of life to be a disciple of Jesus. You have to do to your sin what the scribes and Pharisees will do to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem. They killed Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. Well, that's what you've got to do with yourself. That's what you've got to do with your sin. You've got to nail it to the cross. In this part of Mark chapter 9, Jesus is coming at the same realities he's talked about at the end of Mark chapter 8, the same realities about the Christian life, but now he's going to use different language, he's going to use a different set of metaphors. And Jesus does sound very harsh here. There's no getting around that. In fact, Jesus sounds barbaric. He talks about gouging out eyes and chopping off hands and sawing off feet. Jesus did not speak in smooth words like the false prophets or the false teachers, those false shepherds. The Bible again and again identifies false teachers by the speech they use. For example, in Romans chapter 16, it describes uh, false teachers as using smooth talk and flattery to deceive the naive. That's what false teachers do. Their words sound good. They go down easy. They're very attractive. In Psalm 55, their speech is described this way. It's as smooth as butter. Elsewhere, Paul says they just say what people's ears are itching to hear. They've got an itch. The false teacher will scratch that itch. He'll tell you what you want to hear. That is the mark of a false teacher. The words go down easy. The words are smooth as oil and butter, Scripture says. Not so with Jesus. His speech is sharp. His speech is brutal. His speech is honest. His speech has hard edges. In fact, he goes on from this talk of cutting off body parts, he goes on from there to talk about hell. Nobody talks about hell as much or as vividly as Jesus himself does. He goes on to describe hell using the most terrifying and vivid language imaginable. And the threats of hell here are specifically for those who will not wage war against their own sin. If you will not go to war with your sin, Jesus threatens you with hellfire, with eternal punishment. Jesus wants us to see the Christian life is war. It is a fight, and it is the fight of your life because it is the fight for your life. That's what the Christian life is. 
It is war. It is a war within. When you become a Christian, war breaks out inside of you. It is a war within your own heart. To become a Christian is to pledge to fight against anything that causes you to sin. To be a Christian is to declare war on your sin. And again, this is a major theme in Scripture. And and again, one of the reasons the church today is so soft is because the church doesn't want to talk about this theme. But it's there again and again and again in Scripture. Just listen to some of these passages. This isn't even close to all of them. This is just some of the passages that describe the Christian life this way. Fight the good fight of faith. That's 1 Timothy 6. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Timothy 2. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's Ephesians 6. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Make every effort to enter the narrow gate. That's Luke 13. Be vigilant. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. That's 1 Corinthians 16. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Work out what God works in. That's Philippians chapter 2. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We read that this morning. That is Galatians 5. Run to obtain the prize like an athlete exercising self-control in all things in order to win the wreath. I do not run aimlessly or shadow box. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest I be disqualified. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Mortify what is earthly in you. Mortify, that means to kill or to crucify. Mortify, kill what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Paul in Colossians chapter 3. And I could go on, but you get the point. Do you hear how the Christian life is described? Who is a Christian? The Christian is a soldier, a fighter, an athlete, an armored warrior, a boxer, a runner, a competitor. Do you hear how these passages describe the Christian life? The kind of verbs that are used. Verbs like this, it's fighting, running, striving, working, making every effort, being a man, mortifying, or putting to death, or killing, or crucifying. Those are the verbs that are used to describe Christian living. When somebody becomes a member of this church, when somebody joins our church, they take five membership vows. Probably uh, most of you are familiar with those vows. The first two vows have to do with acknowledging your sin before God, and that you trust in Jesus alone for salvation. The last two of those five vows have to do with life in the church. You promise to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and to support support the church in its worship and work, and to seek the peace and purity of the church, all of those kinds of things. But that middle vow, that third vow, describes the Christian life. You know what's promised there? Let Let me remind you. This is how it reads in full. Do you promise in faith and in reliance on the grace of God or the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you will strive to live a life of repentance and obedience in a manner worthy of the followers of Christ. Think about that. Every one of you here who is a member of this church has promised to strive to live a life of faith 
and repentance. Every one of you has promised to live a life of obedience, to strive for obedience. You've promised to do that, to put all your energy into obeying God as a faithful and repentant person. That means fighting against your sin, going to war with it. The Christian life is built upon the grace of God. That's clear. It's by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we do this striving. The whole Christian life is undergirded by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. As we trust, as we repent, as we obey, the whole Christian life depends upon God's grace. That's clear. Our salvation from beginning to end is a gift of God's grace. But that gift of grace does not make us passive. It makes us active. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he worked harder than all the other apostles But he says, it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. It was the grace of God energizing me to work and to live in this kind of way. The grace of God doesn't make you passive, it makes you active. We promise to strive, to make every effort. The Christian life is a strenuous life. You have to contend, you have to struggle, you have to fight. We've all promised to do that. Or think about that declaration we use after a baptism. Uh, It's from the Book of Common Prayer, but we Presbyterians make use of it. And this is how, how, how it goes. We welcome the baptized into the congregation of Christ's flock and family and pray that he will manfully fight under the banner of the cross against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. I know those words are very familiar to many of you. Every baptized person in this church is committed to manfully fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. To manfully fight under the banner of the cross against those enemies. Now, look more closely at the way Jesus describes the life of a disciple here. There's really a riddle here uh, that needs to be unraveled. Jesus often speaks in riddles. He often speaks cryptically in such a way that it requires wisdom to to really grasp what he's saying. So what does he say here? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. He says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than to go to hell with both feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus here is describing how ruthlessly and vigorously we must fight against our sin. You must be so committed to fighting your sin, Jesus says, that you would be willing to amputate a limb to keep from sinning. You you hate your sin so much, you despise your sin so much, you would rip out an eyeball if it would free you from sin. You have to mortify your sin, destroy your sin, kill your sin. And hey, if that means lopping off a body part, that's fine. Just do it. If that means cutting off a body part, better to lose a body part now than to have your whole self, body and soul thrown into hell forever. That's what Jesus is saying. And the reality is we do often use our bodies to sin. Our eyes look at things they shouldn't. Our hands do things they shouldn't. Our feet go places they shouldn't. We often sin through the body. We use our bodies in sinful ways. Jesus here speaks of eyes, hands, and feet. That pretty much covers the whole body. Those are the extremities, perhaps, but really it covers the whole body. Jesus' point is this. 
He wants you to use your body to obey God. Not just to serve your own desires, your own lusts, your greed. He wants you to use your body in righteous ways. The war that is the Christian life is largely a war over how we use our bodies, over how we use our eyes, our hands, and our feet. That's where the battle takes place. That's where it's waged. Other scriptures echo what Jesus says here. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That is, do not let sin have its way with your mortal body, with your hands, eyes, and feet. Don't let sin have its way with your body parts. He goes on in that chapter. He says, do not present your members, that's his word for body parts, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God and your members, that is, the members of your body, your hands, eyes, feet, and everything else, Present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, consecrate your whole body to service in God's kingdom. Live as those who have died to sin and been raised to righteous living through union with Jesus. Live that kind of way and that will manifest itself in your body. What you do with your body. There are other places in scripture, other passages of scripture that single out body parts and how various body parts can be used as instruments of sin or of righteousness. So for example, Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 warns about proud eyes, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that are swift to run to evil. And it tells us these are things God hates. God hates it when you use your body parts in, the, in these ways. Instead, we could say, Scripture calls us to do these kinds of things. Instead, be like Job who said, I make a covenant with my eyes to look at no unclean thing. Instead, be like what Paul commands in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where he says, lift holy hands in prayer. Use your hands in a way that pleases God. Lifting holy hands in prayer. Or instead, be like what Isaiah 52 describes. Let your feet be like those described in Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. May you have beautiful feet as you run here and there to proclaim the gospel to others. But we've still got a question to deal with here, and this is really the riddle part of it, the cryptic part of it. Are we really supposed to mutilate our bodies in the pursuit of holiness? Did Jesus really mean what he said? Well, I think he did mean what he said. I think Jesus always means what he says. But we need to look again closely at what he actually says. What did he actually say? He says, if, if your eyes, hands, and feet cause you to sin. Note that if. If your hands, eyes, and feet cause you to sin, then this is what you need to do. That's what Jesus says. Well, if. Okay? Well, are your eyes, hands, and feet really the source of your sin? Does sin really come from your eyes or from your hands or from your feet? Do you think blind people still sin? Do you think people who have had limbs amputated for medical reasons still sin? Yes, they do still sin. Because sin is not primarily, uh, does not primarily find its source in the different parts of our bodies. Body parts can be used 
in a sinful way, but your body parts are not the real cause of your stumbling. Your body parts are not the real cause of your sinning. Your body can be used for wickedness or for holiness, but your body does not act on its own. Scripture is clear again and again. It's out of the heart that flow the issues of life. Your body does not act on its own. It is a tool of your heart, an extension of your heart's desires. Your body does what your heart wants. That's the key to understanding human behavior. Your body does what your heart wants. The heart is the issue. Not your eyes or your hands or your feet. It's your heart. That's where the issue is. That is the source of your sin. And Jesus again expects his disciples to get this because he has already taught them this. He expects them to be able to solve this riddle because he's already explained the source of sin back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Jesus asked the question, what defiles a person? And he says, it's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of his heart. Not what he eats with his body. It's not what goes into his body, but it's what flows out of his heart. The heart is the source of sin and defilement. And so Jesus says in Mark 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and on and on he goes. Most of those sins that Jesus lists, if you look at that in Mark chapter 7, most of those sins that Jesus lists, or perhaps all of them really, are sins that involve the body. Those sins involve different parts of the body, different members of the body. They involve eyes, hands, and feet. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying they don't come from eyes, hands, and feet. They come from the heart. It is the heart that defiles the body. The heart is the source of our corruptions. So what do you really need to do to fight your sin? What do you really need to do to fight your sin? Not gouge out an eye or cut off a hand. You'd still sin probably just as much without those body parts. What do you really need to do to fight your sin? You've got to cut your heart out. You've got to cut out your heart and get a new heart. Or you need to cut out those parts of your heart that still hold sinful desires. You need to cut out those parts of your heart that still have sinful desires. Cut it out like you would a tumor. Wage war against your own heart. Wage war in your own heart. Wage war in your own heart against whatever would lead your body astray. How about that? That seems to be what Jesus is really getting at. Jeremiah chapter 4, the prophet says, wash your heart from evil. Again and again, the Bible shows us it is the heart that is the issue. Why did did they sin in the garden? It's because a desire sprang forth in the woman's heart and then the man's heart too. Again and again, Scripture describes sin as coming from our evil desires within. And that's why we end up using the body in sinful ways. It flows out of the heart. The heart is the issue. Don't cut off your body parts. Cut out your old heart and get a new heart. Ask God to give you a new heart, new desires, new affections, new loves, new hatreds. That's what we need. This, then, is what the Christian's warfare looks like if you had to put it in a sentence. By the power of God's Spirit, that is, by God's grace, we fight against fleshly desires in our own hearts, striving, working, 
and disciplining ourselves to crucify the flesh that we might more and more offer our whole selves, body and soul, to righteousness. That's what God calls us to. That's what Jesus is saying here, that the life of the disciple looks like. That is the Christian life. Or to put it more succinctly, the Puritan John Owen put it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will kill you. It's one or the other. Either you will die or sin must die. That's it. That's the Christian life. It's one way or the other. You will crucify sin or sin will crucify you. If you are a Christian, you cannot be at peace with your sin. There must be a struggle. We all sin. That's why we confess our sins every Sunday. That's why we get down on our knees and humble ourselves before God and we acknowledge we've done things we shouldn't have done and we haven't done things we should have done. We're all, we all still sin, no, no question. But what do we do with our sin? Do we fight against that sin or do we surrender to that sin? Do we put up the, the, the white flag of surrender and let sin have its way with us? Do we try to make a truce in this war, a, a peace treaty with sin, or do we wage an all-out war with sin in our hearts, in our lives? Where there is grace, where God's grace is present, there will be war. Grace creates conflict. It creates, it creates a conflict in your heart, a war with sin. Where there is faith, where there is salvation, there will be war. There will be this struggle. And that really brings us to the next part of this passage. What are the stakes in this warfare? What are the stakes? What's at stake in, in, in fighting this war and how we fight this war? Nothing less than eternal salvation or eternal damnation. What is at stake in this war? Nothing less than heaven and hell. And you see that here because Jesus contrasts life. Obviously, when he talks about life here, he's talking about eternal life or life in the kingdom because he also talks about the kingdom. He's contrasting life with hell. Those are the only two possible outcomes. Hell is mentioned three times in this passage. Now, there's some textual variants. There's some funny things going on with the, with the manuscripts of this passage. I won't get into all of that. But hell is mentioned three times in this passage. And Jesus progressively describes hell in more horrifying detail each time. That word for hell is the word Gehenna. It gets its name from the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hanam, which was this steep ravine right outside of Jerusalem. And it eventually became the garbage dump for Jerusalem, kind of the landfill. And so there was always smoke coming up from its fires. It was a place that was filled with maggots and worms and just all kinds of nasty things. It was a place where wicked kings like Ahaz and Manasseh offered child sacrifices to Molech. Jeremiah came to call it the Valley of Slaughter. And over time, it became an earthly picture of hell. The best picture around Jerusalem for the people to see. You want to know what hell is like? Look at the Valley of Hinnom. Look at Gehenna. And Jesus is drawing on that here. Jesus, in fact, is especially drawing imagery from the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 66 that speaks the same way. How does Jesus describe it here? He speaks of hell as a place of unquenchable fire. It's unquenchable, which means it is eternal. He speaks of it as a place where the worm does not die. Again, the worm does not die. That describes unending suffering. The fire perhaps describes objective punishment. The worm describes subjective punishment. Hell is a place of torment inside and out. And for Jesus, 
Hell is a place of justice because hell is where sin gets what it deserves. And if we don't see that, that, that sin deserves this kind of punishment, this kind of eternal hellfire, this kind of eternal torment, we don't understand the magnitude of sin. We don't understand how heinous sin is. We don't understand the glory of the Lord that we have sinned against. Because the sin is proportional to the one you have sinned against, the, the magnitude of the sin. When you sin against an infinitely glorious being, there's only one way to deal with that. That's infinite punishment. Elsewhere, hell is described as a place of darkness, a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the point. Heaven and hell are the places where we finally become what we have been becoming. It is where you reach the destination that the road you have been traveling takes you to. See, how you live right now, you're, every one of us is on a path. Every one of us is on a path leading either to eternal glory or eternal misery. And what reveals the path you are on is your relationship to sin. Do you fight your sin, or do you give yourself over to? Do you confess that sin? Do you take that sin to the cross and seek God's forgiveness for it? Or do you love that sin and cherish that sin and protect that sin? What do you do with your sin? Do you take it to the cross where it can be nailed there to the cross with Jesus? Or do you revel in that sin and glory in that sin? and give your life over to that sin. What path are you traveling? What are you becoming? What are you growing into? Those are the key questions here. Hell or heaven, the destination you arrive at will be the outcome of the kind of life you've lived. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone unless you need to be scared. I'm just giving you the facts. I didn't write the message. I'm just the messenger delivering it. This is what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is giving us the facts about heaven and hell. Well, finally, we come to the ending of this passage that really ties all of this together, verses 49 and 50. Here, Jesus speaks of salt and fire. Of course, we're familiar with the metaphor of salt that's used in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says we should be salt and light. Salt describes what Jesus' disciples should be. We should be salt. We should be salty. We should be salted. Salt, of course, is a preservative. Salt is used for flavoring. So salt prevents corruption. And salt adds flavor, brings out flavor. That's a way of thinking about the role that uh, we as Christians play in the world. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if it loses its saltiness, it is useless. Now, this is another one of these little cryptic sayings, riddles that Jesus gives to us. Uh, a scientist would tell you that the chemical compound for salt is stable. Salt can't lose its saltiness. Salt can't cease to be salty. So what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus just a bad chemist? Does he not really know what he's talking about? No. Salt can lose its saltiness. Salt can fail to serve its purpose as a flavoring agent or as a preservative if it is mixed with impurities. What makes the salt lose its saltiness is when it gets mixed with other things that corrupt it. And if that salt gets corrupted, it is useless. And so what is Jesus saying about the salt that loses its saltiness? He's saying his disciples have to stay salty. They have to stay pure, free from compromise or corruption that comes from the world. Then, Jesus goes on at the beginning of this passage, if we live that way, then he says we can live at peace with one another. If we are salted, if we're salty in this way. But this is what's really interesting. It's verse 49. 
Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? What does this saying mean? It's easy to see how the properties of salt can describe Christ's disciples, but what about the fire part? How do salt and fire go together? How can we be salted with fire? Well, think about this. Where do fire and salt appear together in Scripture? Where do you find salt and fire together in the Scripture? Well, one place you find them together is in the sacrificial system. So we read out of Leviticus 2 this morning. In the book of Leviticus, in the Old Covenant sacrificial system, um, we read about what is known as the grain offering, or I think it could be better translated as the tribute offering. What do we know about the tribute offering? This was not an animal sacrifice. It did not involve the shedding of blood. In fact, the tribute offering was always placed on top of a blood animal offering. You could never offer the tribute offering by itself. That's what Cain did, and that's why his offering was rejected. The tribute offering had to be offered after and on top of following some kind of blood sacrifice. God could only accept your tribute if you had first pleaded the blood of the sacrifice. See, the tribute offering was really a blood, it was really a bread offering. It's called the grain offering, it can be called a bread offering too. And it represented the works of the people. That loaf of bread represented the work of the people the labors they had done, and now they're offering their labors to God. So this is tribute. This is about the people offering themselves and their works to God. The tribute offering represents our tribute, our good works, the fruit of our labors that we seek to offer to God. But is God just going to accept anybody's works, anybody's efforts? No. The only works that can be accepted by God, the only works acceptable to God, are those that are offered to him through a blood sacrifice. And that's why the tribute offering always follows the sin offering these other blood offerings that have to be made prior. So, so think about it this way. Through the blood sacrifice representing Christ, the Israelites would offer to God the works of their hands represented by the tribute offering. That's the relationship of the tribute offering to the other offerings. Now, you may have heard at the end of that passage that we read this morning, Leviticus 2.13 tells us that the tribute offerings were salted when they were put on the altar fire. In the tribute offering, the grain offering, salt and fire come together. And really, that's because salt and fire are a lot alike. Salt, in the Bible's symbolic way of looking at the world, salt is solid fire. You put salt by itself on your tongue, it's going to burn. You have ice out on your steps, what do you do to to melt that ice on a cold winter day? You put out salt. Salt's kind of like solid fire. It, It melts that ice. Salt and fire go together. Symbolically, the way the Bible sees them, they are similar. And in the sacrificial system, salt and fire together transform the sacrificial offering. Another place you see this is in the book of Ezra. When the temple's being rebuilt, uh, the prophet says, he, he gives them a long list of things they need to be gathering up so they can get the sacrificial system going again. And he includes salt. He says you need salt for The offerings, again, salt and fire will go together in the sacrificial system. So, when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, and so have salt in yourselves, what is he saying? The disciples would have thought, hmm, he's saying we need to be salted? Well, you you salted sacrifices. Maybe Jesus is saying we are the sacrifices. That's where salt and fire go together. 
So think about it this way. The blood sacrifices of the book of Leviticus are especially fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. But the tribute sacrifice, the grain sacrifice, the bread sacrifice, the bread offering is especially fulfilled as we offer our works to God through Jesus. One way we do that in the liturgy each week is with the offertory. That's our tribute offering today. But we're supposed to do this throughout our lives, continually offering ourselves to God as, what, a living sacrifice. See, what Jesus says here at the end of Mark 9, Paul says the exact same thing at the beginning of Romans 12. Mark 9, 49, and 50, those are Jesus' words. Paul gives his own explanation of the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, offer your bodies to God. It's interesting he even refers to bodies there. Paul may have even been thinking of this passage from Mark 9 when he wrote Romans 12, the first few verses. Paul says, offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is Paul saying? We're to offer our bodies, our eyes, hands, and feet to God as a sacrifice. And it's to be a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. That means assaulted sacrifice, a covenantal sacrifice, free from worldly corruption that would cause the salt to lose its saltiness and the offering to be rejected. See, Jesus and Paul are both calling us to the same thing. They're both calling us to a life of sacrifice, a life of total obedience and complete devotion to God. That's what it means to be a disciple, to live as a sacrifice, to offer your eyes, hands, and feet as a salted sacrifice to God, a tribute offering. Through Jesus Christ and his once and for all offering on the cross, you offer yourself to God as a salty, fiery sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as Paul says. So let's wrap this up. Jesus gives us two ways in this passage. He's always giving us two ways, not just Jesus. The whole Bible's always contrasting two ways. There are two ways to live. The way we choose will be revealed by how we use our bodies. The way we have chosen will be revealed by what we do with our eyes, hands, and feet. Will you choose holiness or will you choose hell? The way you live is your answer to that question. I don't care what you say about your answer to that question. I don't care about the words you use. The answer you give to that question is going to be manifested in what you do with your body. That's your answer to the question. Will you choose holiness or will you choose hell? The choice is made in the heart, but it is revealed through the body. There are two ways to live, two ways to use your body, leading to two possible destinations. You can be a living sacrifice offered to God, pleasing and acceptable through Jesus Christ, not corrupted by the world, not, not conformed to the ways of this world, but transformed by God's grace. Or you can be a dead sacrifice, one who is destroyed in that unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. How you live, the pathway you choose, determines your destination. That's what Jesus is showing us here. And so again, this is the choice Jesus puts before you. Will you choose holiness or will you choose hell? Those are the only possible alternatives. That's the bottom line. Fight sin ruthlessly in your life or go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the stark reality of it. 
There's no middle ground. There's no third way. This is a binary thing. You either fight sin or you'll be cast into hell. That's it. There's no salvation without holiness and there is no holiness without spiritual warfare. If you want peace, live at peace with your fellow Christian. Yes, Jesus says that. But do not be at peace with your sin. Peace with sin means death. Take action against your sin. Take up your cross and fight. Ruthlessly hack your sin to pieces. Take up the sword of the word and the other pieces of the armor God's given to you and fight against the sin that so easily ensnares you and entangles you. Strive to live a life of repentance and obedience as is worthy of the followers of Christ. Manfully fight under the banner of the cross against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Manfully fight under the banner of the cross against your sin. That's the Christian life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.